Hey friends, welcome to episode 3 of The Truth of the Matter with Jake Fay. I am your host, believe it or not, I am Jake Fay, and I want to personally thank you guys for listening to this podcast. I appreciate every single listen that I receive. It means a lot to me. And I have another exciting interview for you today. We're going to be talking about a convention of states. What is a convention of states? Why do we need one? And how to respond to the opponent's arguments against a convention of states. It's a long, in-depth interview, so I'm going to jump right into it. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this short break on the truth of the matter. Today I'm so excited to welcome Andrew Woodruff to the program. He's a good friend and mentor of mine. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Of course, Jake. It's a pleasure to be with you here on your podcast. Uh, I'm so excited about it, actually. You've been talking about it um, really, I think, since the beginning uh, when you and I first got acquainted with each other. And so I'm just so happy to see that your podcast is now off the ground and that you are making amazing strides in this area. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm excited to begin. So let's dive right into what I believe is one of the most important causes in the fight for America in Article 5 Convention of States. What is a Convention of States for those who don't know? And why do we so desperately need one? You know, a Convention of States was something I just had no idea or knowledge about. Um, And it's one of those things that I remember going in high school in like the American civics or the civics class that you're required to take, like usually in like your senior year, and you'll get, you know, a crash course class, I guess you could say, of like American civics and politics and like what, how our systems of government work. And you obviously you learn about the separation of powers, you learn about the different branches of government you know, the executive, the legislative, the judicial, and you kind of go through the the different kind of theoretical and the structural elements of our our government. Um, And then, of course, you get to the Constitution, you get through like the different articles, you get to Article 5. And usually, this is my experience, the professor talks about how the constitution was meant to be a document that can change over time through the course through, through amendments, right? That they founders were wise. They knew so much about the, how government ought to operate and they knew about human behavior and these different things. But unfortunately they didn't have everything figured out at the time the constitution was ratified. So they left provisions to allow for the document to be amended through the course of time. And so you learn about article five, where if you if Congress passes an amendment, it will then go to the states to be ratified, where three-fourths of the states would be required to ratify any type of amendment passed by Congress. And then I remember my history, or my, sorry, my um, government professor uh, saying, oh yeah, and there's also the second um, way you can do it. You can have the states get together and call a convention. And that's basically it. That's all you hear. States can get together and call a convention. And then that was probably the first and last time you hear about a convention of states. Um, So a convention of states is basically, as I was saying, it's the second clause of Article 5, where states can get together to propose amendments to, to alter the or amend the Constitution. 
And so it requires two thirds of the states to pass through their state legislatures, identical applications that call for this convention. So today we have 50 states, so you would need 34 to get to that two thirds threshold to call a convention. And so for your viewers, um, after you get to that convention, then the states get together, they will then send commissioners to this convention and those commissioners would then be able to propose amendments that fall within the application. So an application has, it's basically a suggestion. And so like for, um, for there are many Article 5 uh, applications out there that call for term limits, for example. So when they get to a convention, they'd have to debate and propose amendments that fall with under that specific category. And so after um, a convention has been called, commissioners get sent, people, uh, the commissioners can debate topic or the topic through the application. After possibly passing an amendment, it would go to the states. The states would then, um, would then ratify any type of amendment that was passed out of convention. And if it was ratified, it'd become part of the constitution. And that's, that's essentially the process and what a convention of states is. And the same was true for me too. When I first discovered the organization, I had hardly ever heard about a convention of states before. I'm sure in reading through the constitution, I had read through article five. I knew the basics, but it's, it's not something we talk a lot about, which is sad because it's such an important resource. As we say, it's a solution as big as the problem. And we hear a lot that a convention of states would result in structural changes, which some people think that's good. Some people say that it isn't necessary. They say just vote for good people and that'll be good enough. The problem with that is we can elect good people into a bad system, but if the system is broken, how much good can they really do? So I guess my question for you is at this point in American history, will simply electing good people be enough to preserve our country? Or do we need to look at something beyond that, look at more of a structural fix? Well, the answer to that one is pretty easy. The answer is no. The right people aren't going to be able to solve <laughs> solve the problems right. that we have right now. But I want to go back real quick to why we desperately need a convention, because it ties into this, this question about electing the right people into office. And the purpose of a convention, we have to look at that as well, and why there was a second clause inserted into Article 5. Why not just have the first clause where Congress proposes amendments and then those amendments um, get ratified by the states? Why not just leave it that way? Well, the founders were so brilliant. They knew that, well, what if the federal government goes beyond what it's supposed to do? Why would the federal government ever propose amendments that would check their own power? Well, the simple right. answer to that is they're not going to do that because that's not how humans behave. If the human, if humans have decided to go beyond, or politicians in this example have decided to go beyond their enumerated powers, why would they? Why would they, why would we then trust them to give those enumerated powers back? And so, um, famously, uh, George Mason he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But he said we we should never assume that this would uh, that the federal government would do this. Instead, the states. Should, be, should have some power over the uh, amending process. And so that's why it is so desperately needed now. 
because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a, an out of control federal government that spends beyond um, beyond what it can what it can bear. Twenty nine trillion dollars right now in debt. I mean, that's a number that I just can't wrap my head around. Neither can any American truly wrap their head around twenty nine trillion dollars. Right. And I remember back in 2016, we were arguing about $18 trillion in debt. That was the big argument. Now we're to the point where we're almost we're getting close to uh, that number being doubled, where we're at $29 trillion. So things of that nature where you just you can't get the right person into office. Just look at the historical record. I mean, we don't have to go very far. We can go to the um, Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement saw a complete shift in the political culture with getting, you know, the assumption was, well, we just need to get those right people in office. Well, the Tea Party came and Obama, and it was basically um, to kind of shift the the view of healthcare and that healthcare was not a right that should be given by the government. And that there was not just an endless supply of handouts that the government can give. And so the idea was let's get as many people in office who agree with the sentiment. But that didn't change the fact that spending has not slowed down since the Tea Party movement. And then you can also look at Donald Trump as an example. Donald Trump, uh, many people voted for him thinking that he was going to go in there and be the right person to kind of smash the DC monopoly and drain the swamp, you know, those kind of uh, buzzwords. But nothing really changed. DC has become more vitriolic it's definitely on fire right now with rhetoric and with um, lots of hatred, but it hasn't really changed as far as the structural aspects and as far right. as the spending aspects. So what you're seeing, even though the quote unquote right people have been elected to office, depending on your you know, political persuasion, of course, nothing has changed in DC. We're still at $29 trillion and we're still growing. And we still have politicians who have been within the DC swamp for 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, you could just look at all of the, the leadership between Mitch McConnell, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and uh, Chuck Grassley. Those are, you know, two Republicans, two uh, Democrats. I mean, between them, they've all had 30 plus years in Congress. So getting the right people in office who agree with you, I don't think is the proper remedy. Instead, the proper remedy should come from we the people through a convention of states. Right. And I think that's why we need to look at a solution that's bigger than what any one person can do, what having the right people in office. I think we need to look at a bigger solution, which is convention of states. So I want to talk more about the nature of the changes we'd like to make to the Constitution. As Dennis Prager says in left versus right, I believe it is video number five, you wouldn't want to fundamentally transform something you love. And I know that everyone within the Convention of States organization loves America, loves the Constitution. We don't want to fundamentally transform our system of government, but rather we want to use the Convention of States to restore America to its founding principles. I want to make that clear. So could you explain to me how what we're trying to accomplish at Convention of States is really just in line with the founders' original vision for the country. Of course. And the fundamental change aspect, you have to look at it through the perspective of 
well, even if we wanted to fundamentally change the Constitution, we can't. That's not within our power. And that's the, even if we, you know, when we get to a convention, as I was saying earlier, our application and any Article 5 application has strict parameters. And so changing the document, having it change, be changed fundamentally, where you completely alter the, excuse me, the structure of government, is just not something that can be attained through an Article 5 convention of states. It's a limited amending convention. It's not a convention that, like the 1787 convention. What you can change, though, is you can change the not the fundamentals, but you can change kind of on the periphery and even really some kind of inner parts of how things are structured. Um, and, and so for convention of states, there are three planks that are considered, three planks to our resolution, the convention of states resolution. And in those planks, you have term limits. That's one of the planks. Putting term limits on elected officials bureaucrats, and even staffers. And Convention of States has even gone as far as possibly going into um, judges as well. And then the second plank is fiscal restraints, perhaps a balanced budget amendment or some other type of amendment that would deal with fiscal uh, restructuring. Um, And then the third one, the third plank for the Convention of States resolution is uh, putting limitations on federal overreach, when the federal government goes beyond what it was intended to do and what the enumerated powers within the constitution allow the federal government to do. When it goes beyond that, that's where we could put some type of amendment that would restrain the federal government from going into those areas. And so those three planks make up our resolution. And even though you're not fundamentally changing the structures of government, you're not, you know, completely changing the executive, you're not completely changing the legislature, you're not completely changing um, the judiciary. Uh, What you are changing is you're um, remolding some of the structural issues to better reflect the principles of the founding, the chief one being self-governance. And, you know, this begs the question, who decides? Who, Who gets to decide these 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 questions should it be some person who is a career politician in Washington who lives a thousand or thousand plus miles away from you who's not accountable to you or should some of these issues be you know when it comes to spending when it comes to tax policy when it comes to um, um, how long people can serve in office should that be more uh, closer to home decided closer to home and at convention of states we believe that these these issues should be made closer to home because people. Um, these, when the decisions are made closer to home, those people who make those decisions are more accountable to the people. Right. And so that this whole argument that I'm making really centers on the whole on the point that dec- decisions should be made with the individual, and they should be able to hold politicians accountable who are close to them, who are closest to them. Right. So you have this ruling class, and it's hard to imagine that they would ever give back the power that they have taken. The founders in their wisdom knew that if the federal government ever took too much power, it would never willingly restore that power to the people, to the states. So they gave us a convention of states 
as an option to take that power back. And you and I understand what an Article 5 Convention of States is, but admittedly, it is a complex issue. And I find that it can be challenging to explain the process in a short amount of time. So let's tackle some common misconceptions about a Convention of States. One thing I find hard to explain are the safeties and precautions put in place to protect from bad amendments. A lot of people ask, you know, how do we prevent a really bad amendment from passing out a convention? Well, COS has actually addressed that issue. So why is it that we are confident under our application that a convention of states would never result in a bad amendment being added to the Constitution? That's a really great question, and it's a question that we get a lot at convention of states. Um, because one, there's a lot of myths that have been put out there and there's a lot of fear that's been put out there as well. The first point that I would bring up is what I had said before. We are an amending convention that is limited within the scope of the applications that the legislatures pass. So in other words, um, our resolution covers three topics, covers term limits, fiscal restraints, limiting the, um, overreach of the federal government. So we wouldn't be able to propose amendments that are outside of that scope. So something that would actually increase the federal government. Well, that would not be what's called germane to the resolution and therefore it would not be something that could uh, could be proposed. So that's one thing to think about. Um, what is germane to the resolution? Um, the other thing to think about is our organization, um, we are the, the, the cure you know, having a convention, we feel that that is the cure, but we're also kind of the guardrails because um, the organization, the Convention of States organization, we're just raising the grassroots army of people who are going to call this convention, who are petitioning their state legislatures to uh, legislators to, um, to pass the Convention of States resolution. Our organization is not going to be the convention. They're not going to be the delegates that get sent. The state legislatures, each state is going to be able to send their own legislator. So the grassroots army that we are building is in turn going to hold state legislatures accountable. That's one of the great things about our organization is we're not just trying to get amendments passed. We're building a, a, an army of grassroots activists and so those grassroots activists, at some point when we do get to a convention, they will be deployed to make sure that the delegates, the commissioners at the convention are going there with the proper intent and are uh, they're going to hold them accountable, essentially. The last thing that I will bring up is the idea that this is, um, this is a, a convention where we submit ideas. We propose amendments. Nothing out of convention that gets passed becomes law. Everything that gets passed out of a convention is a proposal. And so these are basically topics that commissioners will debate. And they will then, after debating, they will come up with an amendment. And if that amendment gets passed, it will come out of convention. But then it still has to go to the most difficult hurdle. And that is getting ratified by the states and it requires three-fourths or 38 states to become an amendment to the constitution. So let's suppose there's something, some type of amendment, let's say it gets through 
the convention somehow, um, some type of amendment that would water down or inhibit the second amendment. Can you really not think of 13 states that would block any bad amendment that was related to uh, the second amendment or to guns, gun confiscation or anything like that? I can guarantee you that there are 13 states that would be able to block any bad amendment. And that's assuming that the other uh, safeguards that I just mentioned, uh, that some bad amendment was able to get around those, which I am of the belief and many people at convention, why not even many, all of the people at convention of states believe are sufficient safeguards. Uh, Because the one that I mentioned is the grassroots side. The other is the actual fact that Article 5 conventions are limited in, in their scope. And so those two areas, having a grassroots army that will be keeping the commissioners accountable and the actual law, those two things are sufficient to keep any bad amendment from getting to the states to ratify. Despite those two areas, you also have the fact, like I just mentioned, that the states ultimately will decide if this ought to be ratified. Right. And I think that's something a lot of people don't understand about a convention of states, even if by some random chance a bad amendment came out of a convention, it would still have to go back to the states before it gets added to the Constitution. So the states are yet another safeguard against bad amendments. And I thought it was interesting, you mentioned fear. One of the challenges that COS faces is that its opponents rely heavily on those, you know, short fear-based arguments that scare off potential supporters by convincing them that a convention of states would actually be a dangerous threat to our liberties. We hear a lot about the runaway convention. Apparently the 1787 constitutional convention was a runaway convention, and if we called an Article 5 convention of states, our opponents say it too would run away or have the potential of running away. So tell us about the runaway convention argument and how would you respond to it? So this is another, as you were saying, uh, another topic that comes out, comes up quite often and it's based fully in myth. And this, uh, the myth being that the constitutional convention of 1787 was a runaway convention and that the founding fathers went beyond their authority and what they were commissioned to do. And there is a great video that you could watch on the um, on the Convention of States website, if you go to cusuniversity.com, and you'll see Gov100, which goes into the particulars of the Constitutional Convention of 1787. And in that video, the, the runaway myth theory is addressed, and it's put to rest by Michael Ferris, who is one of the premier uh, scholars for Article 5 and, of course, um, the Constitution. And he played a major role in fighting for homeschools. Anyway, that is a, a great video to go watch. I can't articulate it quite as well as he can, but the 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 way our opponents craft this myth is they call it a constitutional convention. Well, that's not what we are. We're not uh, calling for a constitutional convention. We're calling for an Article 5 convention of states. But to, a, but to a person who is not familiar with convention of states, they, they, it's easy to, to blur the lines for that person and have them believe in the deception that what we actually are calling for 
is a constitutional convention. And I remember before I really knew anything about Article 5 or Convention of States, I remember hearing this idea and sharing it with people. And then I remember one person who was an opponent to this saying, well, I don't know. I don't. Th- I think it'd be very scary to have politicians start wanting to chop up and slice up the Constitution for their own interests. And then I, I immediately, I was, a wave of fear washed over me. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is a good point. Why should I trust people with a document that I revere and love? And I don't want them changing it. But that was based on a misconception on what is actually being attempting, attempted to be achieved. And that is a convention of states, an amending convention that is limited in its power and limited in its authority. And so our opponents, they hang their hat on the hook of this is a constitutional convention or a con-con as they call it. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a funny play on words because they're the ones who are actually cons in this. They're being con artists trying to deceive people that what we are attempting to do is completely rewrite the constitution, which is not the case. So again, I would, I would encourage your listeners to go to COS university to watch gov 100 and to it's, it's available to anybody. Um, and that is a, uh, a very educational video that outlines exactly what happened in the 1787 uh, constitutional convention and how it was not a runaway convention. The other point that I'll bring up here, and I'm, I'm not 100% sure if it's in the, in the video that I just mentioned, the Gov 100, but Mark Meckler, Convention of States co-founder and president, he talks at length about the runaway myth as well. And one of the things that he brings up continuously is the fact that why would we revere the founders but then say that they were dishonorable, so dishonorable that they completely belied their commissions when it came to going to the Constitutional Convention. Why would they dishonor themselves and go beyond their authority? I mean, these were honorable men who held honor over everything. I mean, they literally dueled when <laughs> you would dishonor them. <laughs> so... And, and not just dueled with swords, they dueled with pistols and they shot at each other if you were to dishonor them. Right. So why would they then do something so dishonorable as, uh, as to, to go beyond their authority? And I think that's really, b- beside all of the other, the mountains of, 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 of facts and, and historical record that show that it was not a runaway convention, that's another aspect that just cannot be ignored, that the founders were so focused on being honorable men and that's just um our our opponents um really have difficulty surmounting that that fact so before we wrap up i want to switch gears for a moment and talk about self-governance one of the things that surprised me about cos is that its mission is so much bigger than just calling a convention of states Our mission is to build that engaged army of self-governing grassroots activists that you mentioned. Could you explain this mission and help us understand why is self-governance so important to the Convention of States organization? Absolutely. Uh, The first thing you'd have to look at is how did we get to where we are right now? 
And an easy answer to that is lack of self-governance. So if we were to get to a convention without first addressing the self-governance issue, well, if any amendments that we pass and any amendments that get ratified through the course of time, I mean, they we, we still wouldn't have addressed the primary issue, and that is a culture, a culture of self-governance. And so by raising a grassroots army of activists, you're addressing that issue. You are changing the political climate, if you will, to be more favorable to a um, to self-governance and to creating um, activists who are willing to to hold politicians accountable and who are willing to be self-governing. So that's really the driving force behind this entire movement is creating a grassroots army of self-governing activists. And it's really important for the reason that I just outlined about you know holding a convention accountable and um, creating a new culture of self-governance. But it's also important to look at, this is exactly what the founders wanted. They wanted an engaged citizenry. They wanted the citizens to know exactly the ins and outs of the constitution. And I'm not saying they needed to be constitutional scholars, but they wanted them to at least be at the point where they not only revered the constitution, but they knew what was in the constitution and they studied what was in the constitution. And the point of being able to do this is if you know the constitution, politicians would, would not be able to take advantage of you. If you know your rights, if you know um, the uh, the enumerated powers within the Constitution, you wouldn't be able to pull the wool over the American people's eyes if you have a firm understanding of the Constitution. And to have a firm understanding of the Constitution, you must be self-governing. You must dedicate time to knowing that. And you must have a desire to be self-governing. So these are all principles that are in line with what the founders believe, founders believed and what the founders wanted for our republic. So that's why our organization puts such a strong emphasis on the idea of raising a grassroots army that is aimed at being self-governing. Right. And that's one of the things that I love about COS. It's built to engage that grassroots army. It is designed to help anyone who wants to be involved to take action. So if someone was interested in the Convention of States, what could they do to get involved? So there are many things that you can do to get involved. The first thing that you should do is go to the Convention of States website, www.conventionofstates.com. And if you've not signed the petition, you should sign the petition um, and share this petition with your friends and family. The next thing that um, you can do that is really the most important part is getting involved at a grassroots level. And so at the Convention of States website, you'll see a take action um, tab. And that take action tab will take you to a part of the website where you can um, apply to become a volunteer within your community. And we have many different uh, positions within the organization. Some people go, oh, whoa, I don't know about volunteering. Well, we're not going to have you sign over your life. You can uh, be an effective activist by dedicating one to two hours a week to this cause. Uh, And you can be an effective activist by doing five hours a week, or you can go even further and do 10 hours a week. 
getting involved doesn't necessarily mean that you have to um, commit um, 40 hours a week, like some, like a, like a, like a, like a career or some type of job. Right. It's something that can be done on the side a few hours a week, calling people who have um, signed the petition or um, helping to be a leader within your community. There are many different uh, positions. And at Convention of States, we like to use um, the skill sets that people already possess. And we think it's beneficial if we take those people who already have these skill sets and we help graft them into the organization so that they can use those skill sets to further the cause of liberty, to further the cause of self-governance. Yes, definitely head over to conventionofstates.com, sign the petition, look for ways to get involved. Also, check out our list of endorsers. On the website, we have a list of all of the people who have endorsed the Convention of States. Definitely check that out. It's an important cause. I encourage everyone to get involved. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jake, for having me. It's a pleasure to be uh, on your podcast, and you are doing an amazing job with this, and I can't wait to hear um, more of the guests that uh, come onto your program. Thank you guys so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of The Truth of the Matter, talking about a convention of states. Please head over to conventionofstates.com, sign the petition, get involved. I love this organization. It excites me to know that there is something we can do. There is something we all can do. So head over to Convention of States, get involved, and also please subscribe to this podcast and join me next week on The Truth of the Matter. Thank you guys so much. God bless.